Hi, and welcome to Seppa Stories. Okay, so for this episode, I have a wonderful story. This story is written by Tolkien Scholar, and I found this wonderful piece of writing titled, If You're Looking for Trouble, I'll Accommodate You. I found this on fanfiction.net, my kind of go-to site for um, posted fanfiction pieces. Um, Okay, so there's a lot here just in author's notes and information before we get to the story. So let me try to summarize some things for us. This is a one-shot. Well, it's titled a one-shot, but this is actually a larger piece of writing that I really think could be broken into maybe a chapter or two, but but it is designated this way, and I'm going to read it in that way. Okay, so the summary the author has provided is as follows. On a mission for the Order, Fabian and Gideon Pruitt arrive in a small town where they spent several other formative years following a tip about Antonine Dolohov. Before they know it, they find themselves hopelessly outnumbered and fighting for their lives, though the brothers have learned a thing or two from an old Western hero about how to fight and how to die. This is a rated T. We have elements of friendship in tragedy. Our characters include Gideon, Fabian Pruitt, Antonine Dolohov. Um, this was published on May the 10th, so it's a fairly recent piece, but I've been trying to get to the story to, to actually read it. It's, like I said, a little bit longer, and I wanted a nice a nice chunk of time to be able to sit down to read the story and do it justice. It is a complete piece, so it's a standalone single piece of writing. So the author does give a note that says Harry Potter is the property of J.K. Rowling. No copyright infringement is intended. And the John Wayne, John Wayne quotes that are in this story in order are from In Harm's Way, The Cowboys, The Longest Day, The Big Trail, True Grit, Stagecoach, and Neath the Arizona Skies. Um, I know who John Wayne is. He was a movie actor, um, kind of after silent movies and after the early talkies. So you would say that, you know, he was a Western cowboy movie star. Um, It was really, really, really quite popular. My grandmother loved John Wayne, and and I grew up seeing these films too, these wonderful sweeping Western films. So uh, my children don't know who John Wayne is yet, so this is maybe inspiration to maybe share one of his films with them. Okay, so this looks like it was a competitive piece of writing, and it does look like this writer is a part of a group because there is a thank you, and I'm going to read the thank you. It says, many thanks to my team members for encouragement and beta-ing assistance, especially to Captain Skorosi. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly, for the suggestions on Fabian's and Gideon's Patronuses. And... There's all different kinds of information here. It looks like this writer also may do some Pokemon fan fiction, which is awesome. And there's different things talking about challenges, individual challenges, representations. And so this is very much um, like a group writing round or a group writing piece. Now, the writer does give warnings for depictions of violence, including against children. So uh, please be aware of that trigger warning. This is a Gideon and Fabian story, which just uh, before we begin the story, 
Gideon and Fabian Pruitt are Molly Weasley's brothers. And uh, Molly Weasley was a Pruitt before she meets Arthur Weasley and marries. We know that Gideon and Fabian from the Harry Potter books written by Rowling are killed by Death Eaters and they are found together, their bodies are found together um, by the Order of the Phoenix. And this is a story or that is made mention of to Harry Potter when he is staying at Grimwald Place and um, it comes up I think when Alistair Moody was talking about previous Order of the Phoenix members and what happened to them. So so there there is that story that Alistair, you know, shares with Harry. In addition, I thought that a nice detail in the Harry Potter books written by Rowling and something to keep in mind when hearing the story is that when Harry turns seventeen, and this is coming of age in the wizarding world, Molly gives Harry a watch that belonged to one of her brothers. And I'm not certain without going back and doing a little research, I'm wanting to say it was Fabian's watch, but it was a traditional wizarding gift to give somebody turning 17. And Molly does give this to Harry. So it, it is a very personal gift that she gives to Harry. And so this story, I think, is addressing the battle of Gideon and Fabian when um, at the time of their death. So I like this story because there's not a lot of fan fiction about Gideon and Fabian and they kind of seem like they were really interesting characters. They were twins and I think very much like Fred and George were twins for Molly. Again, F and G starting names, which, you know, great detail rallying. Um, we have Gideon and Fabian, we have George and Fred. So I kind of think that, you know, this is another recollection to maybe, you know, Molly Ray named her children kind of after her brothers in this sense with the F and G starting names. And and that just kind of makes um, the stories of her brothers and then, of course, the stories of her sons a little more poignant. You know, it seems like Molly's family has always been involved in fighting dark wizards. So with that, let's get to this really wonderful story written by Tolkien Scholar. And I hope I can do the story justice. Um, in reading it to you. So titled, If You're Looking for Trouble, I'll Accommodate You, written by Tolkien Scholar, and we will begin the story now. Holsworthy is a ghost town. Fabian Pruitt paces outside the silent muggle residence, his keen eyes scanning the deserted street. A flicker of movement registers in his peripheral, and he raises his wand, but it's only Gideon stepping out through the gaping hole left when his door was blasted off its hinges. The dying sun's orange rays plays across his brother's pale face, trying vainly to chase away the sickly green glow of the dark mark above. Gideon gives a sharp jerk of his head, and Fabian mounts the steps, casting a final cautious glance back down the street. Dalhoff's been here all right, his brother says in an undertone. As Fabian takes in the carnage, he indicates the body of a boy whose only sign of injury is a trickle of black blood flowing from his mouth. Fabian winces. 
recalling his own turn on the receiving end of Antonin Dolohov's infamous curse, the mortal agony of his insides turning to liquid fire. The volley of potions it took to save him was almost as bad as the curse itself. This kid won't be so lucky. Fabian nods curtly, then adds, Dolohov's not alone, I'd say. Those two. He gestures at a man and a little girl, both of them drenched with blood. Look more like Travers or Rosier. Gideon agrees. Wait till you see the mother. He leads Fabian upstairs, where the body of a woman lays in the hallway, grotesquely contorted and misshapen. The work of Lestrange, if I ever saw it, maybe more than one, says Fabian, and his brother nods. What was she doing up here? He thinks he knows the answer, and desperately wants to be wrong. A baby. Gideon confirms grimly, Dolohov, again. Fabian's guts twist. He's seen it all so many times, he ought to be jaded now. But somehow the kids always seem to get to him. Do you think we should call for reinforcements? He asks, as they return to the landing. They came out here on a tip about Dolohov, and they hadn't bargained on a raiding party of three or more of you-know-who's finests. He doesn't trust the empty silence. Gideon's mouth twists up in a wry grin. Scared, big brother? Fabian knows he's supposed to give some go-hung declaration, or gung-ho declaration of defiance. Instead, what comes out is a quote. All battles are fought by a scared man who'd rather be someplace else. The Pruitts moved to Holsworthy the summer before Fabian and Gideon turned seven. Mr. Pruitt had lost his ministry job and the post-war tussle of pro versus anti-muggle politics, and this house was the cheapest they could find with a flu-capable chimney. For the twins, however, the real attraction of their new home was the kid next door, Joseph Stratton. Joe Stratton was a muggle, a fact they knew because they'd asked him. Six-year-olds are not known for subtlety. But Joe could do other things. He could sneak out of his house without his parents catching him, a skill his new friends quickly picked up. And he had an inn with one of the ushers at the local Odenin Cinema. And at least once a week, Joe, Gideon, and Fabian crept into the dark theater and sat down front where no one ever sat so no one would ever catch them. And there they craned their necks up at the big screen and waited for John Wayne to ride up, guns blazing. Joe Stratton loved the Duke. There probably wasn't a boy in America who loved the Duke more than he did. Whenever a new cowboy movie made its way across the Atlantic, Joe was the first one to see it, and his buddies Fabian Gideon were on either side of him. Afterwards, they'd head to Joe's backyard to play cowboys. Of course, there could only be one John Wayne, which caused a lot of squabbling, but they worked out a way to take it in turns. Occasionally, the twins would talk their sister Molly into playing, though this tended to backfire as Molly would tattle at the slightest provocation. Really, she ought to have seen how much more realistic it was to use Mum and Dad's real riding brooms for horses instead of the lame old brooms with sacks over their tops from Joe's garage. Anyway, they'd made Joe promise not to tell. Cowboy films were the best, but if John Wayne's name was on it, the boys saw it. There was something about the stories, something about him, 
They couldn't have put a name to it, not at age six or at ten or even at fourteen, when they moved again and left Joe Stratton behind. It was the way the Duke fought for those who were weaker. The way he stood by his principles, he never backed down from a fight. It, it was though the film wouldn't come out until they were in their twenties. But the Duke had grit. Gideon acknowledges the quote with a nod. Guess it can't hurt to have someone else fighting in our corner. And he closes his eyes for a moment, then raises his wand and murmurs, Expecto Patronum. A silvery eagle materializes, flapping its wings as if impatient to take flight as he leans over to whisper a message. A message. Fabian goes back out to the stoop. He needs the space. His tremendous grizzly bear Patronus would fill half the room. But it's more than that. They've been in this place too long. He doesn't trust the silence. Well, would you look here, Dolov? Draws a lazy voice. The hairs on the back of Fabian's neck stand up, and his grip tightens on his wand as young Ravastian Lestrange lobes into view. Seems our handiwork has attracted a couple of blood traders. I wouldn't make it a habit of calling me that son, Fabian replies, his easy tone belying his searching eyes. Rebastian's brother Rodolphus and his harpy of a wife, Bellatrix, appear in another ruined doorway, and he gives them a nod. Glad to see the Lestrange brothers are back on good terms. Hated to hear you two had fallen out especially over something as silly as who deserved credit for the Ross murder. Didn't your mother either teach you boys how to share? Rodolphus smiles thinly and doesn't answer. He feels his brother come up beside him and registers with a glance that the eagle is gone. He hopes it'll get through in time. It has to. Three of them, four with Dolohov, wherever he is, though I would have sworn those two bloody ones... A blaze of orange light streaks up from the ground, drawing his eyes upward until it meets an enormous silver bird in flight. The eagle screams as the curse tears it in two. Frantically trying to reform itself, even as a second blaze slices through it. Within moments, Gideon's Patronus is nothing but silvery wisps vanishing into the twilight. Sorry about that growls Evian Rossier, appearing from behind a bit of shrubbery. I guess I got a little jumpy. He grins, showing his rotted yellow teeth. Fabian Hart sinks. They are alone. Well, well, it appears we are all assembled. As one, Gideon and Fabian turn their wands on a burly wizard with a pale, twisted face striding up the street to meet them. Dalav, says Gideon. Cooley, how nice of you to drop by. The hideous grin splits the Death Eater's malformed features. Not at all. The pleasure is mine. I am your host, after all. Well, in that case, Fabian retorts, some of your guests don't seem to be doing so well, Dalahov. They appear to be a bit, how should I put it? Dead? Gideon. Dalahov's grin widens. Guests, no, no, you are mistaken, my dear Fabian. The muggles are part of the feast, the appetizer, to be precise. Now you are here. Let us begin the main course. 
The Pruitt brothers barely have time to put up their shields before five curses come flying up at them. Molly riding them out over the broomsticks was a setback, partly because Dad tanned the twins' hides so thoroughly they could hardly sit down, but partly because when they went back for them a few days later, Molly's was at a friend's house playing dolls or something. They found the door to the broom shed firmly padlocked. This, however, did not discourage them for long. Joe could keep his mouth shut. He had, after all, been the one to teach them how to sneak. Fabian and Gideon were firm believers in in for a penny, in for a pound. They were still at the age when the phrase accidental magic covered a multitude of sins. If anyone had asked the gunshot sounds Gideon learned to produce when they first when they fired their toy guns was entirely accidental, a product of his vivid, vivid imagination. Similarly, Fabian's trick of making an acorn or pebble stick to the end of his gun until he fired it, at which point it would fly off in Joe or Gideon's general direction, was quite out of his control. Joe was jealous of the twins' talents, of course, but as his parents always brought him the coolest and most realistic toy guns for his birthday, it more or less evened out. At any rate, he never said anything to the adults, and that was the main thing. Then came the twins' Hogwarts letters. Playing cowboys with Joe became a summer-only activity, and even then it wasn't as fun since accidental magic had now become underage magic, which, as everyone seemed determined to impress on them, was viewed very differently by the authorities. Joe had also made other friends while they were away, and thus began the sad but natural process drifting apart. Underage magic, however, was only a problem away from Hogwarts, and far from diminishing into the rosy memories of childhood, the cowboy games moved to the Gryffindor boys' dormitory and became even better than ever. If necessity is a form of invention, then the adolescent Mill's love for explosion is its annoying younger brother. By their third year, the boys had developed a spell to make Gideon's gunshots sounds effects, and by the fifth year they were adapting it to add projectiles, sparks, lasers, even something akin to muggle to a muggle paintball. Most of their fellow Gryffindors weren't familiar with the Duke and couldn't be kids or tells of the film quotes Fabian and Gideon tossed back and forth, but they loved the games. Later, when a dark wizard arose, who was the epitome of everything the twins' childhood hero had fought against, their spells' projectiles turned deadlier. They wanted to. Their poor brothers could make their wands into machine guns. Gideon's shield charm breaks under the onslaught, and Fabian instinctively moves to cover him. They retreat inside, crouching down on either side of the doorway. And Fabian sees his own determined resignation reflected in his brother's eyes. Then Gideon says, You can't give the enemy a break. And Fabian finishes, Send them all to hell. Sagetto firmium ignus. Gideon leaps to his feet as a hill of searing iron shards bursts from the end of his wand. The startled Death Eaters scurry for cover, though Dolohov flicks his wand behind him, sending out a ball of green light. Gideon dodges, and the killing curse smashes through the screen door at the back of the house. Meanwhile, 
Fabian begins setting up defenses. The mogul's house is hardly an ideal fortress, but it's better than nothing. He levitates the falling door, crossways over the opening, fortifies it with a heartening charm, and fixes it in place. Then comes a litany of protective spells. Protego, Tertullium, Vanitildurai, Repello in Crincimum, Ante Teraparato. Gideon crouches behind the makeshift barrier, his wand pivoting back and forth along its edge like a cannon. Fabian glimpses Lestrange's darting in and out of the opposite doorway, hurling curses. Most of them fizzle out at the end of his barrier, while those that make it through deflect over their heads and smash into the ground. The air is thick with the sound of gunshots and the taint of smoke. A little help over here. Gideon grunts. He's breathing hard. Sweat streaming down his temples. Fabian crouches beside him and peers into the melee. He spots Rosier closing in from the left, ducking behind a hardened rubbish bin lid, and lets fly a stick-fast hex that strikes his exposed feet and anchors him to the ground. Curses of a different type spew from Rosier's mouth, and Fabian grins. A ball of red light breaks through the shield and hurtles towards them. They dive out of the way, but Gideon doesn't quite make it, and the curse catches him on the air. He collapses, screaming, and his wand slips from his hand. Fabian throws himself towards his brother and tries to restrain him. He's thrashing about, banging the side of his head against the floor. Cruciatus, Fabian thinks, hearing the high, shrieking laughter of Bellatrix Lestrange outside. Kideon, listen to me. You've got to fight it, you hear me? You've got to fight. That's right, and when you stop fighting, that's death. What are you going to do, lay down and die? Not in a thousand years. His brother looks up at him through eyes glazed with agony. He grits his teeth and pushes up onto his elbows, groping for his wand. Fabian looks out, searching for that mane of wild black hair, knowing the only way to stop his brother's pain is to stop her. He sees Rosier, shoes left behind on the ground, charging forward to assault the reinforced area shield. Rebastian and Rodolphus hard on his heels. He sends several spells at them, manages to lend a stunner on Rebastian. Bellatrix is nowhere in sight. Gunshots ring out again. Fabian turns to his brother, but Gideon has collapsed, writhing back to the floor. Then a strange voice saying familiar words floats through the smashed screen door at the back of the house. Young fella, if you're looking for trouble, I'll accommodate you. Fabian whirls, realizing too late that he hasn't seen Dalahav for several minutes, though he wouldn't have said the dark wizard's grotesque features leer at him through the twisted wire, and he instantly throws himself in front of his brother, raising his wand. Then the Death Eater stumbles inside, clutching his bleeding wand arm. The barrel of a shotgun is pressed against his back, and holding it, Joe? Joe Stratton? The last time the Pruitts saw Joe. He'd been a gangly, pimply fourteen-year-old with a rather pathetic attempt at a handlebar mustache. The man in front of him is now clean-shaven, burly, and muscled enough to be a fair match for Dolohov in hand-to-hand fighting. But there's something familiar in the face and in the brash, righteous way he holds his gun. And if any muggle could be brave or foolish enough to take on a dark wizard with a shotgun, it isn't hard to believe Joe Stratton would be the man. 
Joe's eyes widen and he grins. Should have known you two would be involved when I saw that full stick in this fellow's hand. And here I thought I was getting in on my first real shootout. Well, there were some things a man just can't run away from. He sounds so exactly like his old self that for a second Fabian forgets where he is. He has so many questions, so much he'd like to say. But then comes the electric crackle that means his defensive spells have finally crumbled and he knows he is out of time. He renews his assault on the Death Eaters outside, forgetting about defense, wanting only to inflict as much damage as possible. Bellatrix takes a bullet to the shoulder, and Fabian realizes with a shock that it isn't his. He hears Joe cock his gun as Gideon hauls himself to his feet. Thanks, partner, Gideon says with a weak grin. Any time, Joe replies. Still, they're outnumbered. And Joe's shotgun, useful in taking Dolohoff by surprise, is poor protection here. The Death Eaters break into the house, and spills fly thick and fast. Within minutes, a killing curse takes Joe in the chest, and he falls, his shotgun thudding to the ground beneath him. A reductor curse takes Fabian's leg beneath the knee, and he slumps to the wall, trying to stay upright. He cuts his mind off from the pain, as though it belonged to someone else. Bellatrix and Rodolphus are practically on top of him, and it's all he can do to block their constant stream of curses. From the corner of his eyes, he sees Dolohov lunging for Gideon, busy with rosiers and the dazed but determined Rubastian. Rubastian, but there's nothing Fabian can do. The burly Death Eater gets his good arm around Gideon's neck and rests his wands away with his teeth. Distracted, Fabian doesn't see the blasting curse until it hits him, and his wand and wand arm go up in a scorching ball of flame. He slumps to the ground, staring up at the grinning, ghoulish faces of his attackers. It's over. He's imagined death so much it feels more like a memory. First, in the cowboy games they played as children, when they were good guys, and the good guys always won, and the bad guys always died. Later, on his missions for the Order, the thought hovering in the back of his mind because war taught him pretty quickly that sometimes the good guys die too. But this is how he wanted it, a fighting death for what's right with his brother and a true friend by his side, a wand in his hand until his hand itself is gone, a death worthy of his hero. And as Dolohov comes to stand over him, his own brother's wand spewing the violent flames that will kill him from the inside out. Fabian knows that's good enough. Hi, and welcome back to Seppa Stories. Okay, so I know that my last um, finishing our story, if you're looking for trouble, ended abruptly. That was intentional. I wanted to, um, my reading to have the finality that I thought the story deserved. Okay, so let's do a quick small commentary on if you're looking for trouble. And if at this point you would simply like to skip this section and go on to the next recording to hear our next story, uh, you're certainly welcome to do that. If you'd like to hear the commentary, please stay, um, please continue listening. And we're going to talk a little bit about the story and the elements of the story and 
items and details that really, I think for me as a reader, maybe for you, um, might have worked. So let's do that now. So Tolkien Scholar, thank you very, very much for letting me read uh, this piece of writing. I loved the characters of Gideon and Fabian and the invented character of Joe Stratton, their muggle friend. I like that um, we hear about Fabian and Gideon, of course, going to Hallsworthy. And I like that it kind of um, falls back into almost like a Western scene. So it very much, you know, has a Western feel, even though we know that, you know, we're, we're in UK. So, um, or we're, you know, we're in the Wizarding War at this point, the first Wizarding War, Voldemort's initial rise. So, you know, this is the last stand, I guess, of Fabian and, and Gideon. And the things that worked for me were, I like that you had the Lestrange brothers, Bellatrix. You know, we had um, Evan Rosier, and we also had, I believe it was, who was the other one? We have Dolohoff, of course, and Travers. So it wasn't just two or three. You had you had a group of Death Eaters and you know they they kill an entire family and don't even they don't even spare a baby so I knew that that was probably hard to write and kind of gives you an idea of how how and I guess you could say how maniacal the Death Eaters were these these are characters that enjoy inflicting pain they're they're Voldemort's, you know, um, some of his highest ranking hit, hitman or followers, or I guess you could say um, inner circle, inner circle followers. So they very much, you know, take everything to an extreme for, for Voldemort. So we know that the Death Eaters have killed a, a muggle family and they've placed the dark mark above of the building where they have been, but they haven't left yet. And so Fabian and Gideon kind of walk into, it's not really a trap. I don't know if, if this was bait to get them there or if they were just in the wrong place or the wrong time. You know, maybe they, I kind of think that this was a setup because Dolohoff does pretty much um, imply that, yes, you know, no, they were the appetizer, you know, <laughs> you know, and so, you know, they were, he states that um, I think they were waiting the way this reads. So the banter back and forth I felt was effective and it worked. I liked the relationship and closeness between Gideon and Fabian and that they're fighting together. And like Fred and George, they seem to begin and finish each other's sentences or they're, they're that closely in mind. I thought that was a good detail. I love how while you're having them see the aftermath of what the Death Eaters have done to this family, that, and just as battles are getting ready to happen, you have these these interspersed memories of their childhood, and you get this backstory that kind of unfolds in the middle of all this action that's happening that's very staccato and very fast. I love that I love the construct of Joe Stratton, who's a muggle, and, you know, they're like six and seven, so they're little kids, and they, you know, of course, help themselves to their parents' brooms, 
because that's just so much better than than the brooms that Joe, you know, had with sex over there over the heads. And I thought that was really wonderful. It was a very visual section of the writing where I could see these kids playing and of course Molly's telling on them and getting them into trouble. So, um and then I also liked where they you know, the, these children, of course, Gideon and Fabian, wizarding children, they come up with ways to make their gameplay have sound effects, you know, and, and they're shooting acorns and things at each other, so they're, they're actually moving, but Joe understands he has no magic in the way that Gideon and Fabian does, but they still play together. I liked that, and the whole beautiful detail, and I'm sorry if I've mispronounced things, um, I like the whole beautiful detail of the three boys, the two wizarding boys, the one muggle boy, going to the cinema and sitting down in the front because they're sneaking in where they won't get caught. And they, they're watching all these John Wayne movies. And I thought the timing worked well for this too because we know that uh, by the time Harry and Ron and Hermione are, you know, alive, you know, the that the Dark Lord has been banished for a number of years um, trying to kill Harry. You know, his coming back and resurrection is a whole nother thing, but this is a much earlier time. This is Voldemort's rise to power. So I think the time frame of this maybe being 50s, 60s, you know, um, when John Wayne was making films works well in this story, you know, because they're all sneaking down to go see everything. Remember, these are Molly Weasley's older brothers. So um, that's, that's a nice detail. Okay, so I thought that worked. I really liked, you know, that, that they knew what movies were. And also to the reason that they're in Holsworth, is that, is that correct? Holsworthy, I'm sorry, Holsworthy, is because their father, you know, was having work troubles because of the pro and I guess pro and anti-muggle laws and and fights going on the the political fight, and very obviously it looks like the Pruitt family is uh, pro-muggle, you know, and allowing the boys to play with the boy, the Muggle boy next door, and moving to a neighborhood that would be including Muggles and associating with them. So I thought that was a nice detail that you could infer this information. I thought the Patronuses were awesome. I, you know, I hadn't seen anyone destroy a Patronus. So the idea that that could happen, I hadn't read that happening in a fan fiction piece. This was the first time I read that happening. I thought that was great. What a neat, um, what a neat detail. What a wonderful detail. You know, that the dark Death Eaters would have the ability to destroy a Patronus. I'm like, wow, okay, that was awesome. And then it just, you know, of course, melted away into wisps of magic, you know, and into the twilight. So nobody is there coming for the two brothers because, of course, um, the Patronus is destroyed with the request for help. And then, of course, the... Um, the shield charms that they try to put up. They immediately start fighting these wizards who are now fighting with a darker magic. So one of the things I thought was really was an interesting detail is the first of the story, they find the body of the little boy and he's got black blood and flowing out of his mouth. And of course, we already know 
that Fabian, he says, oh, you know, he's recalling that that had happened to him, that he'd been hit with that curse, and that the potions were almost as bad as the curse itself. So we know that in the battle at the ministry, when Harry and company go to um, save Sirius, who they think has been captured or kidnapped by Voldemort, um, we know that in that battle, Hermione gets hit by Dolohov's curse. Like she silences him and he still shoots off the curse. And I think that's why she was alive is it, it didn't, you know, it still hit her and was is terribly um, dangerous, but it might've had a lesser effect with him not being able to verbalize the spell. I'm not sure, but either way, she gets hit with that curse. So I thought that, you know, that's like his signature curse and he's been practicing it a long time. And so to have that detail brought up here was nicely done. You know, it was a good recall and a very good detail. I loved all the John Wayne quotes. So if you're reading this and you're actually reading the work, the quotes are bolded so you would know which ones were John Wayne quotes, but they flowed so naturally in the story that it would have been weird for me to read it like John Wayne. It just had a good flow with how the story was already written. I do like that we do not hear Bellatrix speak in this particular story. She's a background character but very deadly and I kind of like that because the focus was more on the brothers and Dolohov who we know is you know a crazy 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 wizard um let me see what else did I like I very much also liked when all of a sudden you know they're having this battle oh yeah Gideon is it Gideon yes gets hit in the ear so I'm like, oh, that's that's a nice detail, because of course we know what happens uh, with Fred and George. So, um, yeah, that was I thought that was really that's beautifully done there as well. And then this final battle, you know, they've got five curses flying at them, and then all of a sudden we're sucked back into another recollection. And now we're hearing about how the boys are growing up and they're no longer, they can't disguise the magical things they do as underage magic. Now it's, now it's no longer accidental, now it's underage. So they're having to be really careful with what they do at home now on summer breaks. But at Hogwarts school, you know, they still are very much playing their Cowboys game. And now they're, they're making sound effects. And of course it kind of puzzles everyone they're in in school with, you know, in their house, in a Gryffindor dormitory, you know, the other students don't know about the quotes that they're talking and throwing back and forth at each other, but they love it because now there's sound effects and, you know, there's still projectiles and they're basically, you know, they're, they're taking and amping this up a little bit. I loved that as they get older, these games have become more deadly. They're using these abilities, this influence of watching cinemas with their friend, you know, they've brought it into practical use. Okay, so they're having this battle and it's getting really nasty and it's not looking good. And all of a sudden, here comes Joe Stratton. And he's like, I thought this was going to be my first shootout. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's a very, it, it's very Western, you know, and, and all of a sudden, you know, we've got the three united again, and and then 
you know, we know that they don't make it. Um, Joe gets hit with the killing curse, but, you know, he's he's a muggle with absolutely zero, zero wizarding ability. And, you know, all he's got is a shotgun, but, you know, he's doing as much damage as he can to support his friends. And he's there, you know, with Gideon and Fabian. And of the three um, in this story, he's the first to, to get hit. And then, of course, we have both brothers, you know, start to, to succumb. But they are vastly outnumbered. And, you know, it was really, really sad. But I, I liked that as, as Fabian is dying, because this is now really more Fabian's story than even Gideon's. This is all kind of Fabian's point of view um, at this point. And really through the story, it's all really Fabian's point of view. But, you know, he knows his brother. They, they, they rest his brother's wand out of, I think it's Dalahov with his teeth, <laughs> and comes at him, and he's killed by his own brother's wand um, using that, that signature killing curse. But even as he's dying, even as the flames are going to kill him, he knows that he's going to have a good death, you know, because he's died next to his best friend and his brother, and they were hopelessly outnumbered. And he, he recognizes that sometimes... Um, the good guys die too. So, you know, he he continued to fight up until his last moment. And I thought this was a really nicely written piece of fan fiction about that battle. You know, um, there were no, there was no, um, I thought it followed canon pretty well outside of the Joe Stratton character that that is created, but I thought that the, the muggle um, character coming into play is effective and works for this story because it just shows the nature of who Gideon and Fabian were, you know, that they were accepting of everybody and they were fighting for what they thought was right. So sometimes um, the good guys don't make it. So I love the story and Tolkien Scholar, thank you so very much for letting me share um, your story on this podcast, on this episode, and I really can't wait to dive into more of your other uh, writings, and I'm just so pleased, you know, to be able to bring these wonderful stories to our listeners who would like to listen to fan fiction as well as listen to them. I'm I like to listen to stories and audio content when I'm working or when I'm driving in the car or, you know, if I'm cooking a meal, I tend to read a lot. And so being able to listen to something that I enjoy reading on my own anyway, being able to read it out loud, to share it with you guys, um, with my listeners, to be able to bring these writer's works to you in a way that we can all enjoy these. It's really, um, what this is all about for me personally. So I love these stories. They're really well written. And I'm just so pleased, you know, that um, with the permissions of these authors to bring these good stories to you. So please check out Tolkien Scholar. Tolkien Scholar is on fanfiction.net and may have other works on other sites. But um, yeah, this was a great piece. So I, I do recommend 
checking out the other things this writer has also written. And with that, we're going to close this commentary, and we will see you next time on Sepa Stories.